Well, what a good line to sing at the very end of that song, by your spirit, by your power. So why don't we start by going to the Lord and asking for His Spirit to empower us to hear from His Word and apply it in our life. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank You for this opportunity to gather as a church, Lord. We recognize that as we gather here today, we are a group of... um, Lord willing, spirit-filled believers that have a desire to honor you with our lives and and not just to come to a Sunday gathering, hear the Bible, preach, go home, and then live like none of it matters, Lord. Help us to be spirit-filled believers that hear your word and apply it to our lives, Lord, so that our lives change, so that our lives would be lived in honor and glory to you. And uh, Lord, we ask that you would do that by your spirit and by your power this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, you can open your Bibles to the book of Ephesians if you're not there already. If you don't have a Bible this morning, it's okay. There's a Bible in front of you. Underneath the chairs, you can open that up and turn to the scriptures. Ephesians chapter 6, we continue going through this book of the Bible, just passage by passage trying to understand what God would have for us through these books and, and this book and just apply it in our lives. So Ephesians chapter 6, we're going to verses 14 to 17 today. I'll meet you back in the passage in a minute. But it was the first football practice of the year. Okay? The beginning of what is called Hell Week. I've talked about this before in a sermon, but the first week of football practice is typically a week of intense conditioning, lots of running, sit-ups, push-ups, pull-ups, all the ups, burpees, all kinds of exercise to get us prepared for the season. And so we all showed up to practice expecting rigorous exercise. We we showed up in athletic shorts, a t-shirt and athletic shoes. We expected to run. Except for our friend Brady. Okay? Our friend Brady showed up to the first practice with baggy jeans on. A baggy, oversized shirt and skate shoes. Okay? Flat Vans shoes. Needless to say, he was ill-prepared. Now, I guess Brady had thought he would receive the athletic clothing on the first day of practice. He didn't know he had to show up wearing athletic clothing, but he was sadly mistaken. Now, Brady did all of the running, all of the push-ups, pull-ups, with one hand holding his pants so they wouldn't fall off, tripping over his shoes. Needless to say, he was uncomfortable. He was uncomfortable and did not make that same mistake again. Christian, if you go into the spiritual war of the Christian life unprepared, you will be more than uncomfortable. It will be more than difficult for you to stand against the attacks of the enemy. We have to be prepared, and if we're not, we we will get hit. We will be knocked down, we'll be chewed up, spit out by the enemy because we're not ready to stand. We're not ready to stand against 
his attacks. And so Christian, it is imperative for us that we prepare for war. That we prepare for the Christian life by putting on the whole armor of God. Not neglecting one of these pieces. That's where we're at in the book of Ephesians. We're looking at this infamous section, the armor of God. And what we want to do is we want to prepare for battle and put every single piece on. We don't want to neglect any of it. Because remember, last time we were, two weeks ago, we saw the importance of putting the whole armor on. The whole armor of God. And so you're there in Ephesians 6. I want to remind you of where we've been. We're in the final exhortation from Paul in the book of Ephesians. And we understand that the Christian life is a fight of faith. It's not all daisies, roses, butterflies. It's not a peaceful walk through a park. The Christian life is war. It's described as such. Paul, the Apostle Paul says at the end of his life, I fought the good fight. We understand that there is a fight that we must engage in. And so we looked at verses 10 to 13, and we saw that our strength for the battle is in Christ. We are told not to be strong within ourselves, but verse 10, we're told to be strong in the Lord, in the strength of His might. That's where our source of strength comes from, in Him. We saw that our enemy is not a physical force. It's not necessarily the government, not necessarily the universities, politicians, whoever. Our ultimate enemy are spiritual forces. Right? We see the emphasis on the against. We are to stand against the evil one, his cosmic powers in this present darkness, the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So we understand our enemy. And we saw last week our mission. Our mission. Now, our command or the expectation or the mission for us as Christians is not to pursue the enemy, it's not to attack. Flank left, flank right. No, the mission is what? To stand. Our goal is to stay standing. To not be knocked down by the attacks of the enemy, but to stand against him. It's more of a defensive posture. We don't need to go out looking for conflict. The conflict comes to us in the Christian life. We're living in a world where we are hit by this, these spiritual attacks from every direction. Through the media, in the workplace, out in the communities, the neighborhoods. And our objective is just, Christian, to stand. To stand. We see that emphasis. And it's even repeated at the beginning of our passage today. So Paul now moves 14 to 17 to go into detail to describe the various pieces of armor. There is such depth here. And just understand the context. Isn't it interesting that we know while Paul is writing the book of Ephesians, he is... He is what? He is in prison. He is on house arrest. Which means that he is actually shackled. He is chained to who? A Roman soldier. Interesting. So the inspiration for Paul's armor, for the spiritual armor we need to wear, is right next to him. He's looking at a soldier. He's going, huh, this is helpful. This is a helpful illustration for how we ought to prepare in the Christian life. We need to suit up like a soldier. We need to armor up 
and get ready to stand. And so Paul goes into great depth to describe the spiritual significance of each of these pieces of armor. And remember, it's imperative that we apply all of them in our life, that we put on the whole armor of God. Ephesians 6.11, verse 13, take up the whole armor of God. So Lord, help us to not only hear these words and say, oh, that was a convicting message, but to apply them in our life. We need them this week. We need them. We need to be prepared for our battles. So look at verse 14 then. We set the context. Roman numeral 1 in your outline on the half sheet is the purpose of war. Or sorry, (laughs) the purpose of the armor. The purpose of the armor. Look at the first two words. 14, stand therefore. Do you see that in your text? Ephesians 6, 14. Stand therefore. Here's another reminder for us, Christian. Our objective, our purpose, it is not to attack the enemy. It is to stand. Go back to verse 11. Remember, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to what? Stand. Verse 13. Take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to what? Withstand in the evil day, having done all to stand firm, stand therefore. Do you hear the emphasis in the passage? What do you think the Lord wants us to do? He wants us to stand. He wants us to stand. To take this defensive posture against the attacks of the enemy. It's not, our mission is not to attack, but it is to withstand his attack. Our objective is is not to pursue the enemy, but it is to withstand his pursuit. Now, there's an important principle that I want to draw out here. Christian, we cannot go on the offensive at the expense of the defense. We cannot go on the offensive at the expense of the defense. We can't pull the goalie. Those of you who are soccer fans or enthusiasts or hockey fans and enthusiasts, you understand what it means to pull the goalie. Sometimes at the end of a match, in a desperate effort to score more points, the team will pull the goalie away from the goal and put him on offense or put another player on offense so that they can score a goal. But then what happens? It leaves the goal vulnerable. So it just takes, you know, somebody with a pretty accurate shot, a lob shot, to kick the ball over the defender's and go right into the goal. It leaves them vulnerable to attack. The Apostle Paul is reminding us, Christian, stay on defense. Stay on defense. Don't go on the offensive at the expense of the defense. What do I mean by this? What's an example of the church doing something like this? Well, we see this around us. There are Christians that have a good desire to reach more people for Christ. That's a good desire, isn't it? To reach people with the gospel? Or to reach people that that they might be saved and come to salvation and and become a part of the church? Now, what what is it that they do, though? Sometimes their techniques or their means to accomplish that compromise the message of the gospel. Sometimes it comes at the cost of the message itself. So they'll say, oh, let's not talk about sin so that we can reach more people. Or or let's not talk about the cost of following Jesus so that we can reach more people. 
Or let's not talk about the necessary fruit of repentance and obedience in the Christian life so that we can reach more people. See, what, what the church does in that scenario is this. I don't need these shoes. I don't need the shoes of the gospel of peace. We, we need a different message to reach more people. Or, I don't need this sword, the Word of God. That's, in too, that's too intimidating for people, so we're going to use a different instrument. Or, I don't need the belt of truth. Who needs a belt? Truth is relative, isn't it? What's true for you is good for you. See, what happens is we slowly start saying, ah, oh, that piece of armor is not necessary. This isn't necessary. We're going we're gonna to go on offense at the expense of the defense. Paul warns us, no, don't do that. Stand. We need to stand in the fight. We need to be strong in these absolutely critical truths that we're going to look at. It is important that we put on the whole armor of God and that we don't do anything at the expense of any of these pieces. Which leads us to point number two in your outline, Roman numeral two. The whole armor. The whole armor. Six pieces are list, listed here. We have a belt, a breastplate, shoes, a shield, a helmet, and a sword. And we saw last week that if you put the pieces together, who do you see a whole picture of? You see a picture of Jesus Christ. You see the ultimate warrior. He's the one who put on this suit of armor before us. A critical cross-reference to this passage. Critical. And it was obviously on the mind of Paul the Apostle as he wrote this text. And it would have been on the mind of any Jewish listener in the audience in the, in the uh, church of Ephesus. Is Isaiah 59. Isaiah 59. If, if you're a fast flipper, you can turn there in your Bible. I'll have the passage up on the screen. I have it there. Isaiah 59 You've got to understand that the armor in Ephesians 6 is a direct reference to this passage. It is such a clear cross-reference. It has to be mentioned. It has to be brought in. Let me set some context to Isaiah 59. In this passage, we get a picture of the Lord looking down on His creation. And He's disappointed. He looks down from the heavens and he sees a wicked human race. He sees the rampant wickedness of mankind. People are denying the Lord. The, Isaiah says our transgressions are multiplied before Him. He says justice is thwarted. Truth is lacking. The Lord saw it and it displeased Him. It's a pretty dim picture of the human race. And so, in verse 16, we see the Lord do something about it. So look at Isaiah 59, 16. He saw that there was no man, and the implication there, He saw no man who was righteous. Not one. And He wondered that there was no one to intercede. No one to intercede on their behalf, to make things right between wicked man and holy, righteous God. So what does he do? Look at, continuing verse 16. Then his own arm brought him salvation. 
His righteousness upheld him. God decides to act. He decides to intervene. And so what does he do? Verse 17, he puts on righteousness as a breastplate. And he puts on a helmet of salvation on his head. Here's the rest of the passage in summary. Judgment for God's enemies. Salvation for his people. See, Christian, Jesus Christ accomplished our salvation. This is a prophetic look forward at Christ who would come and live the perfect righteous life we could not live, who would die on the cross in our stead, take the punishment of our sin, and in a great exchange, give us His perfect righteous life. And He rose again from the dead, declaring victory over sin and death, and He has ascended to the right hand of the Father. He is King of kings, Lord of lords, our ultimate warrior. So here's the picture, Christian. It's, it's pretty awesome. We look at a display case of the armor of Christ. The armor He wore to accomplish our salvation. And now the Apostle Paul says, Christian, this is the armor you need to wear to live the Christian life. Take down the armor from the display case and wear it in your battles. Christ accomplished your salvation. Now Christian, live it out. Live it out. Apply in your life. Oh, it's a corny pop reference, but I just can't help but think of it. Pop culture reference. I think about the Disney cartoon, Mulan. Mulan. Maybe you've seen it. This young girl, daughter of a decorated warrior in the Chinese empire, she volunteers to fight on her father's behalf because he's too old. You remember this? So she sneaks into her father's room and she sees his armor and his sword in the display case. And what does she do? She takes his armor puts it upon herself, she takes his sword, and then she goes out and fights on her father's behalf. So she fights against the Huns. It's a similar idea in the Christian life. Jesus Christ is the victorious warrior who went before us. He slayed our sin. He conquered our death. He won and secured our salvation. And He did so wearing this perfect armor. Now, Christian... We don't just stand before the display case of Christ's armor and go, oh, what shiny armor He wore. We don't just pontificate theology to one another. We don't just look back at the death and resurrection of Christ and say, oh, that was great. We press on and move forward wearing His armor. We take it from the display case and apply it in our life as we fight our battles. There are the indicatives and the imperatives in the Bible. Indicatives are truths. Christ accomplished our salvation. Imperatives are commands. Because Christ accomplished our salvation, therefore, we must work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Right? So Christian, here we have the imperatives before us to take upon the armor that Christ wore. Take up every piece. Don't leave any of it behind. This is precious armor. This is the Lord's armor. So let's get ready to put each of these pieces on today, tomorrow, and the rest of our lives. Okay, so we get to the armor, and, and we're going to cover three pieces today in the time that's allotted. And, 
This will probably be a two-part message. We'll cover the final three pieces next week. But the first pieces of armor, the first three, by the way, Roman numeral three is six pieces of armor total listed, six pieces of armor. And the first piece is a belt of truth. A belt of truth. Look at verse 14. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth. You could translate it this way. Gird up your loins. Get ready. And the first item is a belt. A belt. What's the purpose of a belt? Well, today it holds your pants up, doesn't it? (laughs) It kind of hold th- holds things together, if you will. And it was similar in the ancient times. In ancient times, a soldier, he did not wear form-fitted pants. They wore tunics, robes. So you can imagine wearing a tunic, a long robe that goes down to your ankles. It'd be difficult to run in that, wouldn't it? You'd trip over the robe or the tunic. And so what they would do is they would cinch it up. They would pull the tunic up and fold it into a belt-like piece of equipment and other pieces of equipment would attach to the belt and so you can think of the belt as this the belt is what holds everything together it's what holds everything together and so think about the spiritual application of that the belt holds everything together in your life the belt is what will hold everything together in your life and what is it that holds us together in this fight what is it Christian it's the truth Oh, so important. Especially in a day, in a day of lies, in a day where the truth is attacked always and from every angle. We need, Christian, the truth to hold our lives together in this battle. Now, what is the truth? What is the truth? Oh, don't so many people say today, oh, what's true for you is good for you. Or the truth is relative. No one can know what truth is. Yes, we can. The Scriptures tell us what the truth is. Jesus tells us what the truth is. Ephesians 4.21 says, The truth is in Jesus. It's in the Lord. John 14.6, Jesus said Himself, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through Me. So we know the truth is in Christ. He is the truth. We can't find the truth without Him or outside of Him. And where do we find Christ? Where do we come to know Christ? Well, let's let Jesus answer that question. John 8, 31-32, look at what Jesus says. He said to the Jews who had believed in Him, If you abide in My Word, if you abide in My Word, You are truly my disciples, and you will know the what? The truth. And the truth will set you free. Jesus said again in John 17, 17, Sanctify them in the truth. He's praying to the Lord. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word, God, is what? Truth. So the truth, Christian, is in Christ, your Savior. Christ is revealed to us. We grow to know Him and obey His commandments through what? The Word of God. Here's your source of truth. Here it is, Christian. Christ and His Word. 
See, we can't say. We can't say truth is relative. We can't say truth doesn't matter, even in this postmodern world. Christian, you can't say what's true for you is good for you. You can't say, I'm going to deconstruct the truth. I'm going to rediscover the truth. No, Jesus said, my disciples know the truth. They abide in my word. Christian, you know the truth. It has set you free, and you know exactly where to find it. It is in God's word. Now, we need to cinch up our life with it. We need to know the word, apply the word, live out the word. Whenever we're attacked, when the lies from the evil one come at us, where do we go? We go to Christ and his word. And we evaluate whether it is a truth or a lie based on what the scriptures say. He's going to try in every way, the enemy I'm talking about, he's going to try to dismantle the truth in your life. He's going to try to deconstruct the truth in your life. He's going to try to dissuade you from the truth. He's going to do that for as many people as he can get a hold of. Don't fall a victim to the lies, but hold to the truth. And so there's various ways to apply this, Christian. I have them listed. Number one, think the truth. Think the truth. Fill your mind with it and think about it. Look at Philippians 4.8. Finally, brothers, first, whatever is true... And he goes through a list there. He says, think about these things. Dwell. That's the verb there. Dwell on these things. Christian, you've got to be thinking about the truth. If you fill your mind with lies, then you're going to be thinking the lie. Fill your mind with the truth. Think the truth. Point number two, speak the truth. Speak the truth. If you think it, Lord willing, it comes out of your mouth. Ephesians 4.25 says, Therefore, having putting away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. Do not lie. Do not say half-truths or three-quarter truths or seven-eighths truths. <laughs> but speak the truth. Speak nothing but the truth. And then number three, walk in the truth. Walk in the truth. Live in the truth. Psalm 86.11 Teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Christian, not enough to just think about the truth, to speak about the truth from the couch, but for you to live in the truth, to walk it out, to live it out in your daily life. That it requires you, Christian, to hear the Word of God and apply it in your life. Then also, walk by the Spirit who guides you into the truth. John 16, 13, when the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. Christian, it's important for you to depend upon the Spirit. To allow Him to guide you in the truth of God's Word. The Holy Spirit reveals, illuminates our minds to God's Word so that we can know it and apply it in our life. So be Spirit-filled. Walk by the Spirit, as Ephesians has taught us. Be a man or a woman with integrity of heart, integrity of mind, and integrity of life. That is... You don't just speak about things over here and then live a different way over here. But our minds, our hearts, our lives are aligned with the truth of God's Word. Every aspect of us is aligned with the truth. 
And then it's important for us to be like the Bereans. Do you know the Bereans? The Bereans in Acts chapter 17, they heard the word taught to them. And the scriptures tell us that they heard the teaching and then they went back and they read their Bibles. (laughs) They read the scripture to evaluate whether it was true. That's how we got to be. So whatever you hear, from whether it's media, neighbor, friends, family, if it's pontificating about a quote-unquote truth, make sure that it's true by testing it to the Scriptures. So important for us to be aligned with the truth of Christ and His Word because that's what's going to hold your life together when the enemy tries to tear it apart. Do not neglect the belt of truth, Christian. Don't neglect it. We need it, especially in our battles today. Number two, the second piece of critical armor that we need to put on is the breastplate of righteousness. The breastplate of righteousness. Look at the second half of verse 14. Having put on the breastplate of of righteousness. Now remember Isaiah 59. This is the exact breastplate that Christ put on to accomplish our salvation. Now what's the purpose of a breastplate? What's the purpose of it? It's to protect what? Those vital organs, right? That are in our torso. We, those are important to protect. And so I don't know what you're imagining, but maybe like a a, a chainmail shirt or, you know, a breastplate, a hard piece of metal, brass. You know, in ancient times, it could have been very thick leather. We don't know exactly what the breastplate was made up of. I'm sure the Apostle Paul is looking over at some sort of breastplate on this Roman soldier. But we don't know what the ancient, we don't know exactly. We have assumptions about what the ancient breastplate actually was physically made of. But we know what the spiritual breastplate is made of. What is it made of? Righteousness. It is righteousness that protects our vital spiritual organs, if you will. Righteousness. Now what is righteousness? That's a word that we often use in Christian circles. Oh, you need the righteousness of Christ. Or, oh, we need to live a righteous life. What does that mean, though? What is righteousness? Let me just give you some basic principles and truths. First of all, righteousness is something that you and I don't have. Righteousness is something that you and I don't have on our own. It's not something that we came up with on our own. Look at Romans 3.10. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. Remember when the Father looks down from heaven, He saw no man that was righteous. So righteousness is something that you and I don't have on our own. It's it's something that we can't earn on our own. But it is something that we desperately need. We need righteousness. Look at Matthew 5.20. I believe the next slide here. You can't earn it, but you desperately need it. Matthew 5.20. Jesus said, I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. We need a righteousness that comes from outside of ourselves that is better 
than the scribes and the Pharisees. And let me just tell you that that is, that's a lot of righteousness. <laughs> the scribes and the Pharisees were the goody two-shoes of the ancient times. They, they had the law down pat, man. These were people that did not miss a Sunday morning. They did not miss their Bible reading. They lived a good life. But Jesus says, no, no, it's got to be better than them. So if the Pharisees and the scribes couldn't earn it, then certainly you and I cannot earn it. We need a righteousness from outside of ourselves, which leads us to where our righteousness come from. How do we get righteousness? Look at Romans 3.22. This is critical. The righteousness of God comes through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. This is what theologians call the imputed righteousness of Christ. And this is what we desperately need. See, we are not righteous but Jesus Christ is. He is righteous. And here is the great exchange. It's described for us in 2 Corinthians 5.21. Look, for our sake, He made Him to be sin, Him being Christ, who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. A great exchange happened on the cross. Look at Philippians 3.9. That we might be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law or obedience to the rules, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. So we cannot earn our righteousness. We don't have it in ourselves. But if we believe in Christ, the righteousness of Christ covers us and makes us right before God. It is faith. Faith. The means by which we receive this righteousness. And faith isn't even something that you or I earn. It is a gift from God. Ephesians 2 told, tells us that. Oh, to be covered in the righteousness of Christ. That's what we all need. We need someone else to live the perfect life that we couldn't live. And that was Christ. So I want to encourage you today. Maybe you sit out there and, and you don't know Christ. You have not received His righteousness by faith, I would encourage you, I would exhort you to trust in Christ today. Believe in Him for salvation because you can only be saved by Him and in Him alone. So Jesus covers us in His righteousness. In a sense, He hands us the breastplate Himself and says, here you go. You're going to need this. <laughs> You're going to need this to live the Christian life. You didn't earn it, but you've got to wear it. You've got to wear it. And so this passage today tells us to put on the breastplate. It tells us to wear it ourselves. So here's the command here, the imperative. And you might be thinking, wait a minute, if I've already received righteousness from Christ, why am I being told again to put it on? Why do I have to put it on again if Christ already gave it to me? That would be a good question. It's a question I ask myself. Write this phrase down. Imputed righteousness produces fruit of righteousness. Let me say that again and I'll explain. Imputed righteousness produces fruit of righteousness in the Christian's life. Romans chapter 6 makes this compelling case. Paul deals with the argument. If we have been made righteous by faith and not our own works, then do our good works even matter anymore? 
do we need to live a good life if that didn't even earn the righteousness in the first place? Maybe you've asked that question. The real question is, can we continue in sin because grace abounds? I'm righteous by faith, not by works, so can I just live however I want to live? Paul says explicitly, by no means. And then Paul goes on to explain what it means that you have been made righteous. He says, listen, you've died. That old life, that old self, those old works of sin have died with Christ. And you, Christian, have been raised to new life. You've been given the righteous life of Christ. Therefore, you, look at verse uh, chapter 6, verse 13. I have it up there. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourself to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for what? Righteousness. So righteousness is not something that we earn and that we accomplish for our own salvation, but imputed righteousness produces fruit of righteous life. So if you've been saved by Christ, if you are covered indeed by His righteousness, Christian, you will produce fruits of righteousness in your life. You will live a life according to God's Word. You will walk in His ways. You will produce fruit. And so Christian, what we're told when we put on the breastplate of righteousness is to seek to now live your life in a way that is right and pleasing to God. As a result of what He's given you, now live out the fruit of righteousness in your life. And this is important because guess what? The enemy is going to attack you with all sorts of unrighteous temptation. I mean, it's all around us. We live in a gutter of a world, don't we? Filth is on the billboards. It's in our Netflix shows. It's on social media. It's on TV. It's even in our politics, even in a sporting event. It's everywhere. The enemy wants to be sure that you have ample opportunity to go back to the unrighteous life that you once lived. And he's going to tempt you in a variety of ways to do so. But in order to withstand his attack, Christian, you've got to put on the breastplate of righteousness. You've got to live out the righteous life that you've been granted by Christ. Look at these passages, Proverbs 15, 9. The way of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord, but he loves him who pursues what? Righteousness. Matthew 5, 6. Blessed, happy, are those who hunger and thirst for what? Righteousness. For they shall be satisfied. Christian, you know it would be a great prayer to pray every morning? A great prayer to pray to prepare you for the battle of the day is this. Lord, lead me away from temptation. Lead me away from temptation and let me be satisfied in your righteousness. Let me be satisfied in your righteousness today. Do not neglect the breastplate of righteousness. Lord, lead me away from temptation and let me be satisfied in your righteousness and walk in a way that honors and pleases you. Put on the breastplate of righteousness. Number three, we'll get through this quickly. 
the shoes of the gospel. The shoes of the gospel, the third piece that we need. Look at verse 15. And as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. It's a big phrase there. Let's unpack it. First, what is the purpose of shoes in warfare? Why are shoes important? You have to understand that they didn't have Nikes or Adidas in ancient times. Okay? They also didn't have steel toe combat boots that you could use, you know, in defense or in running. They had leather heavy sandals. And they made their own cleats. They would put pieces of metal in the bottom of the sole so that they could have traction. They would punch through nails. Imagine how comfortable that was. So these were not sprinting shoes, but they were meant for traction and stability. You could picture, you know, behind a shield, a soldier being pressed in by the enemy, and he needs traction in his shoes to stand in defense, to have a good stability and a grip on the earth. So what provides us stability then? What provides us traction that we need in the Christian life? Look at the phrase, readiness given by the gospel of peace. Now that's an interesting phrase. I gotta admit I reread this multiple times, had to compare with commentators to understand what this means. Because I'm thinking, wait a minute, are the shoes readiness? Three nouns provided. Are the shoes readiness? Are they the gospel? Or are they peace? <laughs> and so I'm having to follow the prepositions in the original language and compare with commentators. And I came to this conclusion that the shoes are the gospel. Okay? The shoes are the gospel because it is the gospel that makes one ready, right, to stand. And it is the gospel within the gospel that we find a message of peace. Peace is found in the gospel and is the gospel that makes one ready. So the shoes are the gospel. Now what is the gospel? What is the gospel? Simply put, it is the good news message of salvation in Jesus Christ. That he died according, died for our sins according to the scriptures. That he was buried. And that on the third day he rose again according to the scriptures. 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4. That is the message of the gospel. Very simple and concise. But to leave the gospel at just a message is insufficient. Because the message packs a punch. The power of God for salvation to everyone who believes is in the gospel. Romans 1.16 So it's not just a message, but it is the very message that saves us and transforms our lives. That is the gospel. If you believe this message, you're saved. If you're here again and have not yet believed in Jesus Christ as the only way of salvation, then trust in Him today. Trust in His perfect life. His death on your behalf and the resurrection that sealed and conquered your sin and death. And as in Ephesians 6, Paul highlights one of the essential elements of the gospel, and that is peace. It is called the gospel of peace. So in this message, Christian, we find peace. Peace. You find both vertical peace and horizontal peace in the message of the gospel. What do I mean by that? Let me explain. Turn over back to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, this is very important. In the message of the gospel, we find peace, both vertical peace 
and horizontal peace. Just a review of this passage. We looked at it in depth months ago now. Ephesians 2.11, there was a big problem, a conflict amongst believers. Look at this. Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles, who were the Gentiles? Those who were not of Israel, Jews. You were Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision, there's smugness behind that, by what is called the circumcision. Oh, those uncircumcised. You were called by the circumcision, uncircumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. There's a conflict that's presented. There's, there's those who are Jews and the people of God and Israel, and then those who are not. There was a conflict between them. And so this is the conflict that Paul addresses. And what is the problem or the source of this conflict? Paul diagnoses the problem in verse 12. Here's the big problem. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ. There's the ultimate problem. That every single man, whether you're of Israel or not, you are separated from God because of what? Sin. Sin separates you from God. There is a massive problem there. There is a huge chasm that cannot be traversed. We are all separated from God because of our sin. And that was the Gentiles' ultimate problem. Forget the conflict for a minute, Gentiles. You are separated from Christ. Big, big problem. But this resulted in a second divide. Look at the rest of verse 12. You were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. So the primary issue is vertical, separation between you and God, but there's a secondary issue now. There is a chasm between the Gentiles and the Jews. Two chasms, two unassailable divides, two massive problems. What is the solution? What's the solution between the host- for the hostility and the conflict between us and fellow men and the hostility and the conflict between us and God? There is one solution. Look at Ephesians 2.13. But now in Christ Jesus. There he is. You who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. He is our what? He himself is our what? Peace. Peace is in the gospel. Peace is in the gospel of Jesus Christ in the work that he accomplished. He closed the gap between us and God. He closes the gap between us and our fellow man. There's the source of peace. There's the message that we must preach and not forsake in order to have peace with God and have peace with our fellow man. It's the gospel of peace. And Christian, this is your sure footing in the battle. This is what you depend on. You are at peace with God through Christ. You're on His team, in His family, in His victorious army. And you have a sufficient means by which to be at peace with your fellow brother and sisters. Because there is no difference whether ethnic geographical, cultural, that the blood of Christ cannot overcome. This is your sure footing, Christian, in the battle. You're at peace with God, and you can have peace with others. Listen, the enemy works hard to attack this, and he's working hard to attack this today. There is so much division in the church. There's division in our culture. There's division in politics. 
There are divides everywhere. We need to know that the solution is in the gospel. And we can't neglect it. The accuser will daily remind you of your failure and try to break apart again that chasm, that division. You're unfaithful, you're sinful. How could you think you're at peace with God? No, Christian, you need to stand strong in the defense of the gospel and know I am at peace with God because of Christ, not by my own works. The enemy is going to attack our horizontal peace. He's going to provoke conflict and stir up division. He's doing a lot of that right now, isn't he? Political division, ethnic division, medical division even. There are, these are, you know, people will say, those are irreconcilable differences. We need to split. No, no, no. We find the evangelical church stumbling over their own two feet over these issues. Unsure of what they're fighting for, who they're fighting against, and what the purpose of the war is. Summit Bible Church, we need to lace up with the gospel of peace. This needs to be our defense. We need to stand together. And if we stand together on anything, let us stand together on the gospel. The most important thing. Not allow the enemy to tear us apart. When conflicts arise, do not move from the gospel, but towards it. Don't be attracted by the worldly means of peace. Let's move back to the gospel, the source of our peace. The means of our peace. Because it is in this message that we find the motivation to forgive one another. To love one another over a multitude of sins. To defer to one another. To live at peace with all men as far as it depends on us. You can only do that if you're in Christ. To look over differences. And Christian, if there's any stumbling block between you and another person, any conflict that arises, any reason for offense, let it only be the message of the gospel, the word of God. Don't let there be divisions over freedoms or preferences or opinions or personality. But let us unite under one man and one message, Jesus Christ and his gospel. Go back to it, the gospel of peace. We need this desperately to stand, especially today. Gospel-centeredness. Be prepared, Christian. Lace up. We as the church need to lace up together the shoes of the gospel of peace. All right, three pieces of armor. Three more to go. There's a sneak peek into next week. We're going to look at the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, the sword of scripture. We need every single one of these to stand. Let me close in prayer. Father, oh, there's such depth here in this rich passage. Lord, I, I feel like not enough, not sufficient time to cover it, Lord. And yet I pray that you would use this text, the word of God, to transform our hearts that we would surrender our lives to it, that we would not just listen to your word preached, go home and do nothing, that we would change, that we would apply it, that we would actually put on these essential pieces of armor in order to stand against our enemy in this evil day. Lord, equip us, church. Equip this church. Equip us as individuals to stand by your strength, in your strength, in power. Lord, I pray that you'd help us now prepare for communion.
Help guard our hearts against temptation and focus on Christ. In Jesus' name.